Hello, world. This is TJ Morris, and you're listening to ET Radio. Welcome aboard, all you ground troops, spinning around smartly on the planet and out in space. Welcome to the cosmos. We are the Cosmos Connection with Janet Carol Lesson and myself, TJ Morris, also known as Teresa J. Morris. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. We're very excited to have a musician for you on Valentine's Day. This is very rare. Uh, we just take who Janet Carolesson finds floating around in space. So this particular gentleman, you may remember the actually the music. He uh, was inspired to write, and we have grown up with it. It was uh, actually a song called Wipeout. And his name is Merrill Finkhauser. So uh, I remembered his face. I imagine you guys have seen him around, too, in television, movies, films. Uh, there's some pictures on here for T.J. Mars E.T. Radio you can see and see if you don't remember him. Sort of a surfer-looking dude, very good-looking, handsome man. And now he's up there with me and Janet hanging out, but he's still hanging out with the big names. So he's considered an A-lister. And we're excited because he lives over in California. Janet Carolessen is coming to you from Maui, Hawaii, and I'm coming to you from Gulf Breeze, Florida. So without further ado, let me get Janet on here, and then we're going to read to you about this diverse and interesting gentleman that she has interviewed before and uh, brought us on Valentine's Day. So let me get Janet on here. Janet Carolessen, are you there? Can you hear me? I'm here. Aloha. It's good to be here. Uh, just want to let you know we have storms, so if I I'll fade away, I'll try to come back on something else. I can call back in. But we do have okay. storms here in Maui, Hawaii. Oh. So, Ooh. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, our river is overflowing. I, I know Merrill will relate to you how when he lived in Maui, I think he was out towards on it or something, but I'm over uh, in the Wailuku, Waiahu area. Um, for those who are familiar with the Hawaiian Maui Islands, it's like Iao Valley, our, our little, we're the second river. There's four rivers that come from the West Maui Mountains. And it is, it's been torrential rains and we can't cross our stream and get out of here and the electric almost went off and the, and the river's chocolate muddy and so it's an exciting day here in Maui. Okay. And I'm really Excited to be here. Um, what else well, do you want to know? Tell me about this guy, Merrill. Now, apparently, he's okay. lived in uh, Louisville in California, and he's been over there close to you, too. But he has a big record. I mean, he even told me that he uh, played with Willie Nelson in Texas. So he's played with Gene and yeah. Dean, which I'm real familiar with, out of Kentucky, where he was, I guess, born over there. We'll make sure he tells us first-hand information on himself, but uh, well, everybody loves Jan and Dean, and his pictures are up everywhere. I used to eat, like, regularly lunch every day and got to meet one of them. I don't know which one, with the producer that lived right there uh, over in Central City, which is close to where I was living in Beaver Dam. But did you meet him, or you've just interviewed him several times? Or tell no, us what I, you I've interviewed Beryl a couple times. He's a friend of the world famous uh, Steve Omar, who's a UFO researcher, yeah. <laughs> and Steve um, ha- had me reach out to Merrill. Oh, this is years ago, and so we've had uh, shows periodically. It's been a cow, been a while since we've had a show. But Merrill uh, has one of the has lived one of the most diverse and interesting careers in music. He was born in Louisville, Kentucky, and he moved to California when he was 13 years old. He went on to become one of the innovators of surf music and psychedelic folk rock. His travels from Hollywood 
to his 15-year jungle experience on the island of Maui have been documented Whoa. in numerous music books and magazines in the United States and Europe. And he gained legendary inter- international status through the field of rock music. And his credits include over 400 songs published and released. He is a multi-talented singer, songwriter, and unique guitar player whose sound has delighted listeners for over 50 years. And anyway, there's some kind of book it refers to, but he's, um, you know, he's played and sung with the greatest, and his latest, um, uh, he's in a, uh, he'll have to tell us about it, but he's in a UFO, let me pull that up, a UFO, I was trying well, to Well, he's like an ET, a recipient of inspiration, oh, yeah. which is, we're really excited about this, folks, because it's really uh, a Here. lot of famous names are coming forward with their music in the extraterrestrial uh, genre, which, you know, this is T.J. Morris E.T. Radio, so we specialize in E.T. divination, inspiration, and you guys know I'm a psychic medium, so this is exciting. Not, I'm with BMI, and uh, he's with ASCAP, and you musicians will know what we're talking about, but this guy actually gets a real paycheck. He actually gets royalties from uh, songs so I mean he's like a been there done that kind of guy so I'm really excited to have yeah. him on the show and give us first hand experience professional musician and not just singer well, songwriter which mm-hmm, go ahead let me finish what I was saying about Electica okay and yes it's a unique and exciting concept album called Electica it's a brainchild of Joanne Summerscales and I was on her show once, founder of the etnewsroom.com. And, and if you look at the album cover, album cover, album cover, I'm going to put it on the website. I'm just uh, capturing the image of it. But it's an okay. amazing picture. It looks like Sergeant Pepper's. But if you look through Lonely all the Heart characters, Club band. It's, got, yeah, it's got Dr. Stephen Lear and Jim Mars and... And uh, Travis Walton, they said all the UFO people, doesn't have the lessons, though. doesn't have Therese J. Morris. We have to make that change for the next one. <laughs> but it has Merle. Well, if we live long and, enough um, to, to change the world, we'll get Merle to make us a new one before he leaves the planet. Well, he may have to stick around yeah. a few more years to get us on there. Yeah, he needs some old women. <laughs> we used to be pretty good-looking women, but you talk about a hunk. Oh. I swear, Janet, I think I had a crush on this dude. I really did. I, I mean, he's close did. to my age. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to, uh, I think we should bring you him, get him on, on here? and let Merrill tell his own story. But uh, I, I'm really curious. I'm looking at this album, and I want to know what it's about. But Merrill, welcome to the show, and tell us what you want about yourself. But somewhere in the course of this show, I want to know about this album and what it means. I mean, there's all these people. Are they on the album? Or is it just musicians? You don't have Michael Lee Hill here. Michael Lee Hill is the uh, son of Eric Clapton, and he was adopted out. And then he found out later, he was so shocked, he was already a full-on musician. And then he finds out he's Eric Clapton's son. He, met the, he found his birth mother first, and she goes, do you want to know who your father is? <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah, that'd be nice. Who's my father? <laughs> and we don't, he was like... Amazed. Anyway, uh, welcome, All right. Merrill. We I want to hear Merrill. 
Yeah, you've you interviewed him before. I haven't. I'm excited. Meryl, you're live and on the air with TJ and Janet, or Janet and TJ. Welcome, Meryl, and we're real excited to have you, as you can tell. So we're going to let you take the floor. Tell us all about you, because remember, I've never interviewed you. I recognize your picture and your work, but tell me who you are, Meryl. You were born on the planet. First of all, thank you both for all those flattering <laughs> remarks. And I want to wish everybody a warmest aloha on Valentine's Day today. Thank you. Yeah. And uh thank you. TJ, actually my parents spelled my name like it should be pronounced Merrill, but it's Merle like Merle Haggard. <laughs> Oh, right, Merle, yeah. okay, so, ah, okay, yeah, I saw M-E-R-R-E-L-L, so I apologize, yeah. Merle, yeah. but yeah, I swear I have known your picture and your work, but I'm really shocked, so finally, after all these years, in my mind, I get to hear the voice and know the, the at least the E.T. energy that goes with that, so I'm real excited to Make your acquaintance in the sound waves, Merle. I will say it properly now, Merle Haggard. Thank you. Merle <laughs> Fankhauser. Now, please tell me, is Fankhauser German or Dutch or Swiss? or What it's is Swiss. the origin of that? And, uh, my uh, grandparents actually came from Bern, Switzerland in the late 1800s, and they settled in uh, parts of Ohio, actually, where there was like homestead land back then and uh actually uh, my gr- my grandfather wasn't married yet when he came and he met this French Canadian Wyandotte Indian lady named Nellie Tayo and uh they were married and then when my dad met my mom he met my mom at Churchill Downs, where the Kentucky Derby is run. And my mom was born in Germany, so she was German. So I'm German, Swiss, and part Wyandotte Indian. And, wow. Uh, well, it makes yeah. a gorgeous combination of uh, biological, if you don't mind me saying so. <laughs> well, beautiful container that you got there going on for and, this and E.T. I, spirit. I really relate to Native Americans, and when I moved to Hawaii in 1973, I felt an immediate kinship to the Hawaiians, the people in Hawaii, and how they accepted me so well, being a blonde, you know, howly. (laughs) But anyhow, uh, the E.T. album that just came out here in January... Eclectia, you were you you were talking about the album cover. Well, some of the musicians are on it, and actually, some of the people like Grant Cameron, the UFO researchers that are on the cover, are also on the album because the album is unique because it's 17 bands from the U.S., Canada, and the U.K that all feel their music has been influenced or in, inspired by ETs or UFOs. And, uh, you know, there's there's a map inside the CD 
cover that te- numbered and it tells who's who and where they're at. And I'm right up in the left corner below Neil Young and just above David Bowie. But it has uh, so many uh, UFO researchers on there. I think Janet would be able to pick them out better than I would. And actually, people are emailing me now asking me, who is this and who's that? So I open up the album jacket, and if they don't have it, I can find it and tell them who it is, and I recognize <laughs> Stanton Friedman on there, but it's a yeah. unique concept, because you're right, they copied Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and where the Beatles stood down at the bottom, uh, they have three gray aliens, and Daniel right. Belay is the one that uh, put this all together, the graphic artists, and he's also a musician, and I think he did a really good job. And I didn't realize that there'd been several parody covers of Sgt. Pepper's, and one of the first ones was done by Frank Zappa. So the the cover itself is getting a lot of attention, and now I've been promoting the album through my hot list of 350 radio stations that play me regularly for years and so I first started sending mp3s to the ones that I thought this music would fit their format and I've got it on a little over a hundred stations since around the oh I started working on it the second week of January so I think we're doing pretty good and We've got it on some stations in Europe and Spain, uh, Britain, Germany, France, and Greece. And uh, my song leads off, they chose my song, Calling from a Star, to lead off the first disc, the first song. And Joanna Summerscales uh, gave it a, a nice introduction, and she is the one that had the idea to do this. She told me about this, oh, a couple of years ago when I was on her radio show in London. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, her and an engineer friend who was also a musician started contacting all of these bands and through bands and artists that she had on her radio show, because her show, you know, is a ET-oriented show also, and they found all of these bands and worked on it for a year or more and finally got it released, and it's uh, it's really unique and, and different, and uh, I'm getting a lot of response from both listeners from radio shows and my my fans and uh, you know I'm hoping here that it's it's going to sell well for her because she puts so much work into it. Now, are now these, where is your picture? All... Wait, I'm yeah, sorry, I was just asking where his picture was, but go ahead. Yeah, I will. That one's a good one too. Um, it, are you looking these, at the cover, TJ? Whoops. 
I, yeah, I don't we know. both are. Let me let, let me ask one, and then you ask yours. Okay, so I I'm looking at the list of artists, and there's 20 different songs. Are they all songs, or are they readings? Well, in between each uh, song, Janet, there's there's songs, but in between uh, the songs are sound bites, maybe a minute or two minutes, and it's each musician from the particular band telling his experience about seeing a UFO or an actual ET or feeling like he's communicating with an ET. And uh, there's a one of the songs that's besides my song that's getting a lot of airplay is Gary Williams' song, Big White Triangle. And it's about this uh, object that he saw flying over the backyard of his friend's house, and it stopped and hovered there. There's another mm-hmm. great one by Mike Oram, who, when he was just a very young boy, saw this UFO in England and saw it go over this hill and land in this grassy meadow, and that's called Travelers. And then there's other songs that are like classical piano parts almost, and uh, John Martin, uh, who plays an acoustic guitar, and they're very ethereal sounding, and they all feel that some other energy from out there uh, downloaded the songs to them. So, right. So it's really something, and it goes right along with Michael Luckman's book, if you're uh, aware yeah. of that. The book he did was about musicians that he interviewed that claimed for sure they felt uh, a lot of their music was inspired and downloaded from UFOs. And the book is called Alien Rock, the Extraterrestrial Connection. And he mentions uh, experiences that John Lennon had, even Elvis Presley, the Moody Blues. He interviewed me and the Rolling Stones. And it's, it's a very interesting book. Yeah, it's uh, the whole concept is fascinating. I know there's a lot more people that uh, are, have their music influenced or their experiencers. So I'll have to talk to Joanne. She was I was on her show one time. Now let's go back to the picture. Um, you wanted to know where is Merrill, and I was looking when you said that, but it doesn't seem to be. Uh, I didn't see David Bowie, but I found you. But Anyway, where are you, Meryl? I'm up in the left-hand corner, and uh, Linda Moulton Howe is, I yeah, think, uh-huh. just above me. And She's I've the... got the, the shades on, and I have the blue robe, but you can't I'll see, see all of it. Yeah. And then Neil yeah. Young is just up in the left corner above me, and that's right. where I'm uh-huh. at. But it's almost turned into a game with people, (laughs) people emailing (laughs) me saying, now I think this guy is, 
is uh, this person. Am I right? You know, and then people kept asking me who the black guy was in the middle of uh, the very top under the pyramid. Nobody could figure it out, but it's Rashan. Roland Kirk. Yeah. Where's Jimi Hendrix? Jimi Hendrix is right in the middle. And they put him in there because, because, you know, he claimed he came from another planet. And he, long time ago in the 70s, he claimed he was getting energy from the Space Brothers. And the movie, you know, that was filmed on Maui in 1970, Rainbow Bridge, that Jimi Hendrix was in, in one part of the movie... Uh, they're in Haleakala Crater going through the trail. And the way mm-hmm. the story was told to me by people that were walking along with them, and Chuck Wine, the producer, was there, and they had this big, huge movie camera and tripod on a burrow, and they had been filming in there. And all of a sudden, two silver, or no, one silver saucer came, and this is in broad daylight, came into the floor of the crater and hovered there, and Jimmy walked out in this cinder field with his arms open saying, welcome, Space Brothers. And he was, like, trying to communicate with it, and it stayed hovered there, and Chuck was trying to get the camera off the burrow and back on the tripod. And, you know, it isn't in the days of these nice, high-definition, little lightweight uh, video cameras that we have now. It was, you know, the big 35-millimeter or 16-millimeter cameras that are very cumbersome. And just when he got it on the tripod, they said the thing shot straight up and disappeared. So Michael interviewed me, Michael Luckman, the author of Alien Rock, about this. And I went over to Maui uh, with Steve Omar, who you mentioned, and we interviewed a lot of the people that are still living there that were in the movie with Jimi Hendrix, and they confirmed all of this. So we made our own documentary called Rainbow Bridge, revisited that I produced and it has music disc and a DVD documentary with all these great interviews and and that's out and you can you can get that from me just go to my website merlefankhauser.com and it's available Nice. Rainbow Bridge. I was gifted a copy of that. I was gifted a copy of Rainbow Bridge by Steve when I last saw him at Contact in the Desert. I haven't watched it yet. I'll have to pull it out and watch it. And then Sasha. The one we produced, you're talking about, right, Janet? Yeah, revisited. Rainbow Bridge revisited. Right. And then Sasha said when Jimi Hendrix was here, they. they had a, uh, what do you call it, a hologram of Jimmy climbing up Haleakala. Like a giant, he was like a giant projection. This is back in the 70s. They had hologram, technolo- hologram technology. And so he said, in honor of what, whatever Jimmy was doing here on the island, this movie plus, I think there was an event 
Um, he did a concert up up in the pasture by Seabury uh, Hall. Right. The, across the from the, from Seabury Hall. Were you here when that was going on? No, I wasn't had, here. Uh, I was still in California, and I was living in Los Angeles at the time, playing here. And uh, after our album, the first album, Moo, came out, we made enough money that we decided we needed to move to Moo, which, you know, the, all the books say Hawaii the, are the mountaintops of the lost continent of Moo. And because our right. band was named Moo, we said, we have to move to Moo. And so in 1973, we packed up everything to the dismay of the record company and our promoter and agent and moved to the island of Maui. <laughs> wow, <laughs> why not? <laughs> yeah. so. so what did you do here? Well, we played a concert, and Leslie Potts' band, The Space Patrol, and Les was in the movie with Jimi Hendrix, opened up for us at the Lahaina Civic Auditorium, and uh, it was packed. It was a big event, and it was, uh, you know, talked about on the radio on Oahu and Maui, and... uh, then we started playing other events. We played one in Hana with uh, David Carradine and his wife Barbara Hershey was there and Ramblin' Jack Elliott, the folk singer, played and Bonnie Bramlett from Delaney and Bonnie. And that was sponsored by Red Shepherd, who was the star of Hair, the Broadway cast. And... Uh, then uh, Quicksilver Messenger Services engineer, Barry Mayo, who had recorded an album just for love for them on Oahu, was living on Maui, and he heard us, and he had some leftover recording equipment from Capitol Records, and he recorded an album on us in our house in Haiku that eventually came out, and that's out on a two CD set on several labels now. And um, then eventually the band Moo disbanded, and I got together with Mary Lee, the violinist, and we did an album with Bob Dylan's drummer, Bill Berg, and two other Maui musicians at the time, and we flew to San Francisco to do that. And... It was like uh, a door of inspiration opened for me, Janet, when I moved to Maui, you know, and living in nature. And I wanted to go out and live in the jungle, which I did, and built a cabin. And the songs were just coming out of me faster than I could write them down. And I had one of those little cassette machines, and I would just, you know, sing the song or play it into the machine and the way i wrote calling from a star was actually in 1974 we went to the top of haleakala crater to watch the sun go down and that was with my band moo and we were living in a house in haiku 
And just as the sun went down, we were standing there with a group of tourists, and there was an older gentleman next to me that had been in the Navy in the Second World War. This blue pulsating light came over the floor of the crater and just stopped. And this fellow standing next to me said, what is that? He said, I was in the war, and I saw all kinds of things. And he said, I've never seen anything like that. And he said, it's completely silent, so it's not a helicopter. Just as he said that, two more little lights came out of it and went up on each side, and they started uh, sending a beam from one to the next, and it formed a tetrahedron, an inverted pyramid. And everybody was just going, ooh, wah, what is this? And this must have gone on for, I think, about four minutes. And then they all converged back together as one and shot straight up in an instant and disappeared. And we were just spellbound. We drove down to my house. I got this feeling that something was going to come out. So I always kept a, a reel of tape on the reel-to-reel tape recorder, turned it on, picked up my acoustic guitar, and instantly the song, Calling from a Star, came out. And I later went back to Hollywood and recorded it in a studio with part of Steve Miller's band and some other great studio players with Peter Noon from Herman's Hermits singing with me on it and it came out on a vinyl 45 in 1978 and uh, it's come out several other times and in 2003 a station in Cincinnati, Ohio played it as a tribute to the fallen astronauts from the Columbia Space Shuttle. I ended up getting a letter of it it ended up on 300 stations. State, other stations heard it and wanted to play it. And I ended up getting a letter from NASA thanking me for writing the song and giving such inspiration to younger people for the space program. Then, to my surprise, I opened up my post office box one day and there was a letter thanking me from the White House signed by George W. Bush. <laughs> so the song keeps reincarnating, and it was on an Italian album in, uh, oh gosh, that must have been about 2005, I think, called The Man from Moo, and now... It's the lead song on Eclectia. So it's come back into the spotlight a few times, and I'm very thankful. And, uh, wow. you know, I I had a, a, a talk once. I, I My friend Harry Nilsson, who was a great singer-songwriter, had a party in about 19... 19- 78 and I told him I was coming over here to record that song and he said oh come to my party and they sent a car to get me and his house is up in the Hollywood Hills and I walk in with my 
acoustic guitar, and there's about 30 people there in his big living room. And over in the corner, there was John Lennon. (laughs) So Harry put me on the spot and said, this is my friend Merle from Maui. He's going to sing a song for us. I never gotten stage fright in my entire life, but my lips started twitching. (laughs) (laughs) So I played the song On Our Way to Hana, which was about seeing two silver saucers while driving the beautiful road to Hana out in the jungle. And as soon as I finished, John said, that is very interesting. What inspired that? So people started gravitating over to where the food and drinks were set up. And John and I went off into a little alcove, and we got to talk. And uh, we were talking about songwriting. And he said, you know, I didn't write any of those songs in the Beatles. And I went, what? And he said, they were given to me by my muse. And he said, isn't it interesting what inspires songs and where they come from? And he said, my best songs were written in 15 minutes. And I said the same thing. So we really had a meeting of the minds there at that point. And I was so thankful to be able to talk to him, even just for a few minutes, and having the same experience. And he later on had a sighting in New York City on the roof with May Pang. And uh, that was after he and I had met and we we never uh, talked about UFOs or anything that night. Wow. Um TJ, what do you want to say? Questions, feedback? Oh, I just can you hear me? I'm I'm just really enjoying it. I was keeping on mute so it wouldn't make any sounds, but awesome. This is great, Meryl. Uh you wanna what do you want to talk about? Because you're so eclectic as a singer, songwriter, and, of course, a guitar player. But it's always nice to reminisce of your life story and people you've met and crossed their paths and all of that. But uh, why don't you tell people what got you from uh, Kentucky, where, you know, I told you I lived for 20 years with my husband doing bluegrass music through Nashville, you know, 100 miles away, and then I recorded it with a few people down there and then paid a lot of musicians. <laughs> but the thing is, you, you're a singer, songwriter, and you moved from Kentucky. And I guess just give us an idea growing up because, uh, you know, we all were dead back in the 60s, and you were hanging out and doing surfing and had this awesome life. But just sort of tell us, like, uh, you know, what, what it was like being you because I find meeting people, we crossed paths sooner or later, and I told you about Willie Nelson, Round Rock, from my parents across the way, and then I crossed his path several times and opened up when he was late getting a gig one time. So we crossed paths with different musicians, and uh, we went through Girl Like Entertainment in Houston with Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Frank Gorsh, and Nancy Ames. Those are names you probably know. Different people like that, and then Buddy Rich on the drums, uh, Gene Krupa. Uh, but my husband was a trumpet player, and Doc Severinsen would come in and do a clinic. And, but he, he got to do a lot of famous things, and I got to sing here and there and open up before Alabama. Alabama used to babysit my children, the band, at the Morris House, and now my name's Morris. So, you know, it's weird how things happen to you. But I just want to sit and listen to how did you get from, like, Louisville to 
I guess California and and then writing and being a surfer and all that. You know, just personal. If you don't mind, it's just good to have a recording of it. Stuff you. Yeah, I was born in. I was born in Louisville. You say it the way they say it back there. With when people read it, they call it Louisville, but you're right. They pronounce it Louisville. I was born there, and uh, my dad actually he played guitar, and he played. Uh, guitar and five-string banjo in a Dixieland band for a while, but that wasn't what he did for work. He was a flight instructor and charter pilot, and he raced in Indianapolis. So I grew up in a colorful family, and my mom uh, sang with big bands. And um, I remember, you know, the cold winters back there in Louisville, And my dad would come out here to California to work or do whatever he was sent out here to do. And one winter, I built an igloo in my front yard. And I remember he came back and said, we're moving to California. I'm tired of these cold winters. And I used to go across the railroad tracks where the black folks lived and remembered seeing them playing music because I played with a lot of little black kids there that were my friends. And uh, that was my first time, TJ, of seeing somebody play bottleneck slide guitar. And they would just, you know, cut off the end of a, a glass wine bottle and put it on their finger. And it was so unique. And that kind of stuck in my mind, and I remembered that. And on my 11th birthday, they got me a ukulele, and my dad started teaching me chords on that. And we had made a trip out here to California around that time and looking at everything and seeing the Indians, you know, out in the desert. And I was just, you know, I wanted to meet Roy Rogers and Gene Autry. And, uh, so when he said we were moving to California, I think I was 12, about to turn 13, and I was just so happy. So when we came out here, he ended up managing a glider port at a place called Lake Elsinore, where they would have these yearly sailplane contests, and he taught me to fly a Piper Cub when I was only 14, and I later sailed and and sailed solo in a Schweitzer 126 glider. And I was always interested in things that fly. And then, you know, in the 50s, they had all those great flying saucer movies. And so I was always asking my dad, Daddy, do you really think there's people out there in space? And he would say, oh, yeah, he said it's too big for us to be the only ones here. So I was constantly looking for flying saucers, and I never saw one till 1974 on Maui. So anyhow, my musical thing kept growing, and uh, by the time I was in high school, we'd moved up here to the central coast, and my dad was giving flight instruction in a 
a town just south of here a little bit called Santa Maria. And uh, I ended up uh, playing solo at a little neighborhood movie theater. And I was started out as an usher and a cleanup boy, and the manager heard me on a break when there was nobody in the theater. And I remember I was playing Poor Little Fool by Ricky Nelson. And he went, boy, you've got a good voice, and you play good, too. And he said, "I'll. Uh, how would you like to get up on the stage in between the two movies in the matinee and do three or four songs? I said, oh, yeah. And he said, I'll give you 12 bucks. And I said, does that mean I get to keep my 35 a week for being an usher and cleaning up? And he said, oh, yeah. So I got up and sang my song solo with a, now an electric guitar and an amplifier through a PA. And after the first show, I went out in the lobby and I was mobbed by teenage girls wanting my autograph. And I went, hey, I think I'm in show business. <laughs> and I think I was about a junior in high school then. And then during my senior year, I met some other uh, high school students that were forming a band. And we formed the band The Impacts and got the house band job around the end of 61 in Pismo Beach at the Rose Garden Ballroom. And at that time, that was the biggest ballroom between L.A. and San Francisco. And we ended up backing up people like the Coasters and Little Anthony and the Imperials, the Isley Brothers, and then people like the Ventures, the great instrumental group who I idolized, would play there, and I got to meet them. And so that just spurred me on, and I started writing these songs, and I was a surfer, and I was writing instrumental songs and putting surfing terms to them, like kick out and wipe out and tandem, and just went on and on. And we had all these songs written, and a talent scout heard us playing from Delphi Records in Los Angeles, and took us down to L.A., and in one afternoon we recorded a whole album, and they said it was some kind of record for speed of recording. Went back home, and within a month and a half, the album Wipeout by the Impacts, which is now a big collector's item, was in every store here in L.A. and San Francisco, and that got me started, and I went on into the psychedelic folk era and kept going and never stopped. And now, 50 albums later, I'm still thankful I'm still going. And that was the second song I learned to play on my guitar <laughs> when I picked up my guitar when I was 15. You're First kidding. one was House of the Rising Sun. No, my... Boyfriend was in a band at the time. Honey, I'm on the radio. Can you make some less noise? Um, and he was playing, uh, you know, locally in Pittsburgh. And anyway, I fell in love with him because he was in a band, right? He was a <laughs> and, and and I had my own guitar that I had picked up and just started wandering around the neighborhood, um, meeting people. And they'd all teach us. We'd teach each other songs. Whoever you would meet would teach you songs. 
And then uh, he came along. He started teaching me Wipeout, and his band was playing it. <laughs> wow. Small world, right? Well, yeah. there's, a, there's yeah. a video of me and Willie Nelson playing Wipeout with the band on Maui at the Mac Center in front of thousands of people. And Willie surprised everybody. He pulled out an electric guitar, a Fender Stratocaster, and we cool. launched into Wipeout. And he takes a solo in it that sounds like it came out of an old 60s surf song. Nothing country wow. about it. And <laughs> afterwards, I I shook his hand and I said, thank you, Willie. That was great. And he said, I did that for you, Merle. And we became, <laughs> became instant friends and we did the whole uh, that whole concert together, and you can see us playing Wipeout together if you go to YouTube and just type in Merle Fankhauser, Willie Nelson, Wipeout, and it's. It, I, I have to grab that. I have to say that's that's a high point of of my career, doing that with him, and and uh, you know it just keeps continuing on all the. Great people I've gotten to play with and meet, like Carl Perkins, and oh, the list just goes on and on. And I, you know, I told you I do a TV show here in California called Tiki Lounge, and I've gotten to have some of my heroes on the show. It's a long list, it's been on for 18 years now, and way over 100 shows out there and I think there's about a dozen of them on YouTube if you go to YouTube and just type in Merle Fankhauser's Tiki Lounge those will come up oh I'm going to go you grab got a long history <laughs> yeah well you go back let's see I'm looking at something here uh, in 87 43 year old working musician Fankhauser's best known as the guitar guy of the Impacts who, plan, who penned the classic, the surf classic Wipeout, legendary leader of the South California Jangle Rock Bands, the Exiles, HMS Bounty, and is that Faber Dockley? Faber Dockley, yeah, that's a funny name that I made up from the last names of each guy in the band at the time, and that album is now a very valued collector's album because it has many people on it that went on to be famous and the songs are really unique and they're all songs I wrote from 1964 to 67 and a sealed copy of that album and there are still some floating around out there goes for over a thousand dollars a guy from Australia said one sold there for fourteen hundred so I wish I would have thrown a hundred of those in the closet. Yeah. <laughs> my mom you kept a few. My mom kept a few and my sister kept a few. And when they closed up the record uh, company and studio, that oh, that was oh, recorded. Wow, Sorry, I found it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you found it. <laughs> when they closed up the, the record company that the album was recorded in, uh, and the owner had passed away. His son told me to come over, and he found a bunch of my 
unreleased tapes of songs, and I went over, and they had four Fapper Dockley albums in the box. And I didn't know if he knew how much they were worth or not. And I said, what do you want for this? And he said, well, we just kind of wanted to get the tapes and stuff back to all of the people that are recorded in Dad's studio. And I said, well, here, here's $200 bills. And he said, oh, you don't have to do that. I said, no, I want to give it to you. So (laughs) I've got some of those albums now, and I got one framed on the wall in my studio here. Uh, you know, it's when I look back at it now, I went, how in the world did I do all of that? And how did I end up meeting and connecting with all of these great musicians? And it just amazes me. It's like I've lived four lives, and it, now it's almost like somebody else did it. And, but I just thank the dear Lord I'm still going. Awesome. Well, Yay. how did you? It's it says in this uh, one of these uh, tele, television star bulletin type things. You've got so much information out there, folks. Just look up the name M E R R E L L space Fankhauser F A N K H A U S E R. Have a good time. Uh, some people called him Captain Trip back in the day. Were you big on? Uh, it says sixty nine. Epic is the best known. Ambitious musical celebration of the antediluvian continent of Mu, and the album brings back to mind Donovan's 69 Atlantis top hit. So apparently they're trying to find a way to, back in the day, the annotation of Hawaiian Islands and submerged continent of Mu, and the Finkhauser moved to Hawaii, says from L.A. in 73. So uh, it says that there was a lost continent of Mu, so somehow... It says your new life jungle, possibly contact with survivors of heirs of the ancient culture. Some kind of thing they were putting in here, it leads to your bits of Indian, big band, new age, acoustic rock, hard rock, hopahali music. Uh, so did you go from like hardcore surfer to I mean, like wipe out and back in the day? Because that's what I used to dance to. I know the kind of music. But did you get into like a new age or ascension age or... Tell us how you went through your music transition, because apparently you can play anything like Willie Nelson, right? But at the same time, I'm just reading about your history with music only, not your famous you know, television and movie and things like that, but just your music. How did you go from, like, surfer music to moo music or, you know what I mean, Hawaiian or well, New there Agey? Was, yeah, there was a lot happened in between there before the moo thing came along because the Wipeout album came out in 62 and then my dad for a while managed a flight school up in the desert the high desert here in California in Antelope Valley and uh, we had to move over there which I didn't like very much being a surfer and being here by the ocean in a semi-tropical climate and then moving to this harsh desert with the sand but I immediately met some kindred spirits there in musicians, and that's where we formed Merle and the Exiles. And I had been writing vocals, but uh, this studio and where we had recorded in L.A., because the instrumental surf thing just took off right when we were recording, 
they wanted all instrumentals. They weren't interested in my vocals. So uh, I formed Merle and the Exiles, and Glenn Records from Palmdale heard us playing at a concert there. And he said, how would you boys like to come to my studio and record? And we jumped at the chance, and we went in there, and he really liked our music. And I was writing a lot of vocals that, oh, gosh, they, you know, I was I was a fan of, of uh, Buddy Holly's, and I wrote some songs that kind of sounded like Buddy Holly's songs. And then something indescribable that was, I guess, my own original thing that I did, and he would just have me come in with my little band every two weeks and record as many songs as we could. And he started putting out singles on us, and they started getting played on big stations in Los Angeles. One of them got on American Bandstand, a song called Tomorrow's Girl in 1967. And I think he put out about five singles on us. Well... Around uh, 67, he decided he was going to put an album out. And I, we had moved back up here, and uh, my dad went back to work at the airport in Santa Maria. And we were here in my little town of Arroyo Grande and playing at a local club at that point. And he calls up and he says, I'm putting an album out on you. And uh, I, I, you know, have all of these songs together and the latest things that you've recorded. And he said, I'm short two songs. Would you come over and record two more? So we did that. And in between there, we the Summer of Love was happening and everything was getting psychedelic. And, you know, Merle and the Exiles sort of sounded like a 50s group and the band guys kept saying we need something more far out man we need something psychedelic so i sat down with a pencil and paper took the first two letters of my last name fankhauser f-a and then we had a bass player at the time whose last name was parish so i took p-a-r the other guitar player's last name was Dodd, so I took D-O, and the drummer was Dick Lee. So I came up with Fapper Dockley, and I handed him the napkin. I wrote it on. I said, there's our new name. And they all just went, that's fantastic. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so when I told Glenn, he was a, he was a kind of... Uh, Oh, gosh, he had recorded Buck Owens and different kind of country people, a real down-to-earth guy and some rockabilly stuff. He said, well, what are you calling the group now? And when I told him Fapper Dockley, and he went, what, Paper Doily? <laughs> I said, no, Fapper Dockley. And he goes, how in blazes do you spell that? So uh, I made sure when they did the you know, the graphics for the album that they spelled the name right. And he put the album out and sent it to his 50 or so radio stations and had a, a distributor, I think he had one in L.A. and one in the Midwest somewhere. And we didn't think much of it, you know, thought, oh, that's a good album. 
and then we ended up moving down uh, to Hollywood in 1968 and auditioned for two uh, record producers that had worked with Glenn Campbell and Bad Company and some other groups, and they loved us, and they took me in to meet the president then of Uni Records, uh, Russ Regan, and they had recorded three uh, demos on us of new songs that I'd written, and he loved those, and he said, well, do you have more? So I sat there in his office with my Martin acoustic and played him the rest of the album, and he said, amazing. He said, you've got a deal, and he shook my hand, and they uh, paid to record the album in the famous Gold Star Studio in Hollywood where Sonny and Cher, the Buffalo Springfield, all kinds of groups had recorded. And uh, the album came out, and it was selling well and going up the charts. We were on the Billboard charts, and it was called Merle Fankhauser and HMS Bounty Things. And I thought, you know, maybe they could have left my name off the front, but they said, oh, no, we got to use your name. It's so different. And uh, they put out two singles on us, and uh, the album, and the uh, that album is a valuable collector's album now, too, but it's not worth anything like Fapper Dockley. And then around... Oh, I guess it was 1970, people started telling me that uh, the Fapper-Dockley album was getting played on various stations and that people were looking for it, trying to buy it. And its popularity kept going. And uh, I went through the whole psychedelic era and played on uh, concerts with HMS Bounty in Hollywood with canned heat and Chicago and just large numbers of bands and then Russ Regan at Uni Records signed Neil Diamond who just was on a little record back in label in Chicago Bang Records and they started promoting him and then the next thing they did was they discovered Elton John and they put out his record. And we noticed all of the promotion went over to Elton John. And we watched our album and our songs falling off the charts. And the other guys in the band were kind of, you know, dismayed at that time. And they were tired of the city and they wanted to move back up here to a slower pace on the coast. And I ended up getting together with some of my old bandmates from Merle and the Exiles and formed the band Moo. And the way we did that was we found a book in a house we were renting in Woodland Hills, suburb of L.A., called The Lost Continent of Moo by Colonel James Churchward, who had done all of these studies in the Yucatan and through India, he found Mu written in, in Chinese legends and American Indian legends and South American Indians. 
And in there, he described where the lost continent of Mu was, and it was centered right where the Hawaiian Islands were. And he and other scientists said that that land was higher up out of the water at one time, and uh, the lost continent of Mu was the mountain peaks of Hawaii now. So we made some money. We got signed to two good record companies, Era Records in L.A., and then later United Artists even took us over. And as I mentioned, to the dismay of our L.A. record label and our promoters and agents, when we made some money, we fled for Maui and uh, set up shop there and, um, you know, just kept writing from there. And then I met one of the high lamas from Tibet, and I took refuge in meditation with him, and I got to play music for him. And when I got to Maui, I really went on a spiritual sojourn, and at the same time I was looking for any ruins of the lost continent of Mu that I could find. And the Lama gave me the name Lodru Jansau, which in English translates to Oceans of Intelligence. And uh, I ended up looking through the jungle, every place I could look for ruins, and an older Hawaiian guy that liked me and heard my stories about, you know, wanting to find the lost continent of Mu, and he said, I want to show you something, and he took me to this jungle trail that led into this valley, and there was a stone sidewalk going down, And he wouldn't go down there. He said he used to play down there when he was a little kid, but his parents forbid him to go there. They said it was Kapu, and the Mu people may get him and take him away. So I went down there, and I felt like now when I look back at it, I was doing Indiana Jones before the character was invented. I came to this flat area in front of this pristine waterfall where there were three pillars standing on a stone platform that looked like Inca stonework because it was cut stone fit together perfectly, not like what Hawaiians do. They just take lava boulders and stack them up and put a thatched roof on it. And there was one pillar that had fallen over and was laying in this little pool. It was like some scene out of a movie. And the pillars were, the only way I know to explain them, they were probably 30 feet tall, but the sides were indented like they had been milled on a milling machine. And then I noticed there was a sidewalk of the same stonework going under the how bush, and I had to crawl on my hands and knees and followed it down to where it went into the ocean. And I could see at least 50 feet out, it was still going under the water, and the lava had flowed over it. So I knew the 
that those structures and that sidewalk was older than that lava flow. And um, some scientists went down there, and I don't know how they did it. They carbon dated the pillars and said they were over 10,000 years old. So those, there's a picture of one of the pillars I took in my book, Calling from a Star, the Merle Fankhauser story. And then I was hiking through the crater, and out in the middle of the lava flow, sticking up the dried lava flow that was over a 1,000 years old, I saw what looked like a pyramid. And you're not supposed to leave the trail. There's signs posted, and the rangers don't like you to leave. But I did anyway, and I had to jump these deep chasms to get to this pyramid. And I tried to climb up on the side of it, but I got such vertigo, I was feeling like I was going to get sick. And I got to a vantage point where I could take a picture with the sky in the background. And I got a picture of that pyramid, which was, uh, I estimated what was sticking out of the lava was 48, 50 feet tall. And I heard much years later the Parks Department let the National Geographic Society go up there with a powered auger, and they drilled a hole in the side of it, which I was amazed. They let them do that, and they concluded that it's a much bigger structure, that this is only the cap top that goes under that dried lava field. So it goes on from there on the desolate side of Maui, the south side where the road ends because there's a lava flow there past McKenna Beach and you can't go any further. There's a stone uh, roadway with stone walls on it going out through the lava field there, the dried lava. And every once in a while, the a big flow of lava will be over this stone roadway and you have to climb over that and the road keeps going. Well, a few miles out on the mountain side, you start noticing all of these foundations and sidewalks and structures that are under the lava, half covered, that were exactly like what I found in the jungle on the other side of the island. And about seven miles out, by a red cinder cone, there's a great big huge building. And my friend that was interested in archaeological sites called it Lost City Hall. And down in the corner of this large building, there's a hole in the floor and a rickety ladder that somebody made. I went down in this, and I had a flashlight, but I didn't have my camera with me. And... Uh, there it was, stone floor, stone walls, and ceiling, all cut stone, the same thing on the other side of the lava. And that was quite a hike. I was very exhausted, and my friend that was with me also. And it took us all day to get back to where we had parked the car. And it's very hot out there. There's no vegetation. There's no water. And that dried lava just seems to radiate the heat. And we were wondering if we were going to make it back. And 
we drank all of our water by the time we got back to the car. But those things are there on the island, and it's in my book. And, you know, I've talked about it on radio quite a bit. And young Hawaiians have actually emailed me and said, my parents and my grandparents never have told me about this. Why is this? Well, I talked to some Hawaiian fishermen, and they call it the King's Burial Ground. And uh, they'll go out just a little ways to a beach and go fishing, but when it gets dark, they leave. They're afraid to be out there. They say you hear all kinds of odd noises and even sounds like babies crying. So uh, that's all. Is that in Maui? That's on Maui. It's all in my book. You, You can see the pictures, and, you know, I've documented it pretty well and the book is available at amazon.com or they can get the book directly from me yeah i'm going to get it if you don't mind on amazon just because it's i can have it shipped here but uh calling from a star and you have some pictures of this moo king's burial off the coast of maui yeah that would be awesome not to mention it's it's your story too right It's, it's up against the where the last lava flow came out of Haleakala Crater, it's it's right there on the uh, desolate side of Maui, past uh, McKenna Beach. And the book is called Calling from a Star, the Merle Fankhauser Story. Available Awesome. Calling from a Star. Now, how did you come up with that name? I mean, obviously we're bragging about you being ET-related and Amuse and you know you get ET downloads with your music or sound waves, but how can you talk about? It? I know we're going to sound new agey, folks, but that's just the way it is. Cause I'm we have okay to with new agey. I like new agey. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I call it Ascension Age after twelve twenty one twelve. Merle, Merle. Yeah. I'm like Merle Haggard. Merle. <laughs> Merle. Yeah. Merle. Well, yeah. when I wrote but, the song "Calling from a Star," it's like I felt you know, a real channel opened up to me. And, you know, the the video of Calling from a Star that's on YouTube and the song still out there doing what it's doing. And I really feel like we are here calling from a star. Connect with us. We need to know you. And it just seemed natural to use the title for the book also. Love it. Uh, okay, so I've got to find that book on Amazon. I'm going to add that. I'm creating a page on AquarianRadio.com and um, putting a lot of images in there that we're talking about Good. today. And then TJ can we play uh, "Calling from her, a Star," so. ladies? Can we? It it's still yet? not loaded. No, nope. oh, it's uh, they. They gave me a. Uh, the only thing I've got, if you want to take a break for a moment, is I could play uh, the one that was uploaded. Uh, Lila, do you Lila, like that and one? That's, that's from the Fapper Dockley album. And as I mentioned, several songs from that album have made it back into the spotlight, even though the album was released in 1967. Uh, a song called Supermarket was in the Thomas Pynchon book, Inherent Vice, that they made a movie 
out of. Uh, the song Tomorrow's Girl was nominated for a Grammy uh, in 2011 on the Rhino release, uh, Where the Action Is, L.A. Nuggets, 1965-68. to 68. And now Lila is in the movie Chappaquiddick. And it's, that movie's been out for almost a year now. So uh, that's Chappaquiddick. something I wrote and recorded in 1967. Now, do I have permission from you? Because if the, you know, we go we go all over FM radio, Stitcher, iTunes. Uh, oh my gosh, uh, all kind of places. And oh, yes. uh, I need your permission to play this. You you own you the copyright per- to Lila. You have yes, I own the copyright. I wrote the song, and it's in my publishing company, Fankhauser Music and ASCAP, and I give you the right to play any of these songs that you want, Teresa. Whoa, well, some of them would be awesome if you let us. We'll just keep keep mo- keeping motivated with uh, your music. Let's get this down now, folks. It's three minutes and 26 seconds, so we hope you enjoy it, and this is compliments of the original owner. And uh, some famous, famous things going on in music and uh, Meryl Fankhauser. All right, we'll be back in a few moments. Then, Meryl, take you a quick break, but uh, listen to this, folks. I'm so excited to be able to play this, and this is news and history in the making on Valentine's Day. So for your listening pleasure, Lila, folks, Meryl Fankhauser. Thank you. 
Delilah by Meryl Finkhauser. Wow, does that bring back memories. And you've got to give us some data on that. Was that an old 8-track recording the studio? That was beautifully professionally done. But uh, do you remember any information of where you had that recorded? Yeah, that was recorded in Gary Paxton's studio. He recorded a lot of songs. Uh, he did the Monster Mash, and he did a hit by a group called Skip and Flip, It Was I. And actually, T.J., that was done on a four-track. Half in tape. And, you know, the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's was done on two four-tracks, and that's the way Lila was done. They would record, you know, basic tracks, drums, bass, and all of that on one four-track. Then they'd do a sub-mix over to another four-track and, and put put it on two-track stereo, and you had two more tracks you could overdub on. Wow, this is awesome. The sound they got. I mean, Sergeant Pepper's wasn't even done on an eight track. It was done on two four tracks. The same as that. And since the song has come out in the movie Chappaquiddick now, uh, another label has put it out on CD with a nice more liner notes and pictures and a a fold one of those fold out. CDs and it's on Gear Fab Records. You can just look up Fapper Dockley if, if you can remember that label. But I also sell them too through my website. If you go to MerleFankhauser.com, you can get the CD from from me. And it's it's really neat that you know these older albums keep coming back and they pick them for these period piece movies. There's a lot of 60s music in this Chappaquiddick movie. And my song is in a beach scene. And uh, a lot of fans have have emailed me and said they played the whole song, but it just wasn't loud enough. It should have been louder, you know. But uh, that's the way it is. But it's causing the song... To get replayed on radio and spots, I, I think you know probably twenty or thirty radio stations now have contacted me that they're playing it and uh, it's available. You'll get some royalty, won't you? From this? oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Let me tell I people do. about it, this. They're Go always ahead. nine I'm months sorry. behind in sending you the royalties. Of course. But, but yeah, everybody's got to make their cut <laughs> before you get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me tell people about Chappaquiddick, folks. I lived through this. A lot of you did. I know the three of us did. Uh, it's about July 18th, 1969. If you all remember where you were, Senator Ted Kennedy drove his car off a bridge off the Massachusetts Chappaquiddick Island Bridge, okay? Now, there was a big deal about this because he happened to have a woman passenger named Mary Jo Kopechny in his car, a 28-year-old campaign strategist who had worked for him. And the reason it was ongoing and was sort of scandalous was she... Now, this is just hearsay, okay? You believe what you want or go and do your own research. But she allegedly was pregnant with his baby, and his father 
uh, helped him. We don't know if he, he went off accidentally or not, and we don't even know if he really did that or if that was after the fact. And, uh, you know, like I said, this is just hearsay because we all love the Kennedys. And, oh, my gosh, so many people. We were going to the moon with John Kennedy and all of that. But, you know, it's up to you. But That was I really two days pro- before the moonwalk, July 18th, yeah, uh, 1969. The moonwalk yep. was July 20th, 1969. Oh, my gosh. It was amazing times, folks, that we lived through. And now you've got a gentleman here that's just full of life and done all this wonderful stuff with his life, been blessed in certain positions in life, and then to find out he's always had this inspiration. And I, too, have felt like I was guided by a star or someone above there, ET Connection. So I'm so glad to have Merrill Finkhauser, folks, join us in his music we're talking about called Lila, three minutes and 26 seconds, is in a beach scene in the movie Chappaquiddick about the Kennedy family, basically Senator Ted Kennedy. Oh, my gosh. The Kennedys are so part of our American history, and we lived through it, folks. So this is very, very historical. Valentine's Day 2019 shared with Meryl Fankhauser, Janet Carolesson, and Teresa J. Morris, which is T.J. Morris E.T. Radio. So we really appreciate him allowing us to play that music and saying we can use his music, which we will have to do that, Janet, and start, you know, because he's an E.T., I guess, uh, inspired or, you know, he's amused for the E.T.s or whatever you want to say. But let's get into a little bit of that. Now that we've played this, Um, Lila, uh, music, let's get into the Janet, the Let's get into his AT inspiration days and and all this because, you know, we talked about the yeah the people that he's got on the front and of course you and I aren't there but like I said maybe we can do something in the future something similar with you Meryl (laughs) yeah Yeah, Meryl you're making us famous yeah I was I was hoping you could play calling from a star you know because that's the lead song off of the new Eclectia album right and maybe it'll load up before before we're done or maybe you or janet can put it into the youtube version somehow put it yeah but sure okay we'll do that we'll figure out we'll do that for you we'll have you back the other thing i'd like to talk talk about is since you wanted to talk about the et thing is in 2014 i was contacted by michael luckman the author that was in contact with this World War II radio expert that lived in the hills of Malibu. And he still, you know, did things with radio, and he liked ham radio, and he was talking to somebody in Australia one night, and when they finished, he slightly dialed off the frequency and started picking up these very strange radio signals like he had never heard before and he knew all kinds of military code because that was his job in the second world war uh, was range finding where the japanese were broadcasting from on these little islands and atolls in the pacific and he just couldn't figure out this is telling me it's coming from three miles out in the ocean and there's nothing there so he was in town at a coffee shop, and 
and telling people about this, how he was hearing these signals. And I guess there was a Shumash Indian guy who was a security guard at the casino that's in San Inez. And uh, he happened to be there and was hearing him. And he told Emmett, the radio guy, he said, well, you know, there's a building under the water out there. And he went, what? And he goes, yeah, it's a dome-shaped building with about 600-foot-tall pillars, and there's an opening in the front. And he said, our tribe, the Shumash, who were the indigenous Indians here a thousand years ago up and down the coast, he said, our tribe is known about that forever and he said when the ocean level was down lower, they used to use it as a pier and fish off of it. And, uh, you know, that just amazed him. So that got back to me through Michael Luckman. And then I was on the radio when, uh, well, they sent me these signals. And as soon as I heard it, I was in my studio and I turned on the drum machine for a click track, I started hearing this melody while I was listening to the signals. And the only way I can explain it, it took me back to my instrumental surf days, and I came up with this low guitar part that reminded me of a 60s James Bond uh, kind of music. And so I played this thing, and then I went out in the studio where the piano's at because I noticed there was four more minutes of the signal left. And I sat down at the piano and just started tinkering around. And I thought, mm, I better push record. So I did. And I played. I didn't even know what I was playing or what key I was in. And I was just, you know, playing along. And I'm an okay piano player, but not really good. I can play synthesizer stuff, but I am i don't consider myself to be a good piano player. So when it finished and I listened to what I played, I got goosebumps. I went, what? Where did this come from? Then I realized it was a piano figure that I had in another song, part of it. And I don't know if I was just playing, you know, what I had felt and heard before, kind of. But I didn't have any idea where this was coming from. And I almost felt like, there again, these radio signals were playing me. So I recorded the two songs with my band, brought them in, sent them to my label in England, and they loved it. And they said, if you do a whole album of this, we'll put it out. So within a month, it was like speed writing. I wrote a whole album's worth of instrumentals in what I term a space rock instrumental genre, which in a way it relates to instrumental surf music to me. So I sent it to them. They put it out. I started doing interviews about it. And I think I did an interview with Janet about it. And after about, uh-huh. after about 30 interviews, it was getting quite a bit of play. 
And I remember a lot of female hosts, Lynn Nickerson was one that comes to mind. She said messages from the dome, the one song with the signals in it, brought her to tears. And this happened with several other lady hosts. So I was on a station in San Luis Obispo. I was in the station live, and they were playing the two songs. And a lady called in, and she said, I used to live in the uh, in Malibu in the 40s, and my aunt and my mom and I would go down to the beach at night and watch the lights go in and out of the water. And I went, wow, that's something. Then that brought to mind when I was a teenager, and I went down to Malibu with some of my surfer buddies for a day of surfing, and we were leaving, and some local surfers were building a bonfire on the beach, and they said, hey, you guys should stick around and watch the lights go in and out of the water. And we went, nah, we got to get back up the coast to Pismo Beach. And my buddy was laughing as we were driving home. He said, oh, they're seeing pelicans diving for fish. And that's what they do up here. Uh, And at dusk, you know, the light glinting off of their wings could look like lights or something else. So I, all of those years, I never thought any more about this. And when this lady said that on the radio to me, I went, wait a minute. And so I thought these signals could be something, you know, that our government was doing, that they were, you know, submarines or something out there. But then I happened to be on Dr. Bob Hieronymus's show from Maryland, and he said, Merle, I want to play you something. He played me this Billy Meyer tape from, I think, 1970 from... Uh, Switzerland, I think it was, and his dog is barking in the background, and this Billy Meyer said that there was a UFO hovering over his house, and he recorded the sound it was making on his tape recorder. Well, Dr. Bob played that for me. It sounded almost identical to what this radio operator from Malibu sent me now. So I went, okay, what's going on here? And then when we started playing uh, a lot of messages to to the dome, from the dome on radio stations, it started turning off their broadcast boards and actually knocking them off the air. This happened with a station in Sacramento, uh, Ken Hudnall in Austin, Texas, it went off, and Mac Maloney near Boston, it went off. And I think it affected Joanne Summerscale's uh, broadcast when, when I did an interview. And I thought, this is odd. And I found out that the stations that it seemed to affect the most had newer digital broadcast boards. The ones that were older stations with analog equipment, it didn't affect. So I have a friend that's one of the chief engineers at George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch in Marin, Bob Edwards. So I sent these signals to him and told him what was happening. I said, Bob, what's going on here? 
So he ran it through a spectrometer and and also on an oscilloscope, and he says, well, what you've got here is three different signals. There's a lower carrier signal that sounds like a train on railroad tracks. Then there's the high-pitched message above that, and he said in that particular spot where it was causing a problem with the radio stations, there's a higher pitch sound on the top that's inaudible to human ears. And at, at the uh, near the end of messages from the dome, there's a sound there that sounds like a high-pitched lady's voice yodeling. And that's where the problem is. So they've never really, nobody, I've had several other people analyze it, and nobody can figure out what it is, but um, maybe they're saying something in there that we just can't decipher right now. Wow. Well, Bob Edwards was the Skywalker sound editor, right, because you mentioned his name. He had the uh, mixer for uh, the Skywalker sound. Is that right? You want to explain that, your connection to Bob Edwards? Well, I met him through William E. McEwen, who produced my Return to Moo album, who also discovered Steve Martin and produced a lot of his movies, and uh, he also uh, produced uh, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and the Allman Brothers. And Bob actually came down and worked on my Return to Moo album in William McEwen's studio in Santa Barbara, and we got to be good friends and then when William uh, decided to retire and closed up his beautiful studio that he had uh, Bob got a job with George Lucas and uh, he's, a, he's a very good engineer and very you know articulate and I figured if anybody could <laughs> figure this out <clears throat> what was going on, he would. But, you know, he he told me that there were three uh, different sounds in that. It wasn't just one signal. And after I listened to it closer, I could hear what he meant. And when you yes. listen to these two songs, uh, you can hear... At one point, you just hear the carrier signal, da 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 da, da and then you hear woo 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 and we can't hear whatever is above that. But Bob said the one in the middle that you can hear is the message. But uh, amazing! Nobody's deciphered now, it yet. Oh wow! You got it. You can't just drop a name Bob Edwards around somebody like me after being in the music industry. I'm like, OMG, because I love engineers, you know, and yeah. and, and I really give so much uh, credit to them for you know doing what they do. But my gosh, we've got to put him in our Hall of Fame, Janet, and the UFO Association with us sound oh, engineers because of this discovery and we're getting around to getting organized with all these people sort of like uh, I guess this other lady in the ET biz but with the UFO Association Meryl we'll have to put you in our Hall of Fame for musicians because uh, we've got to create those people that were 
inspired, I believe, with uh, the ET music and sound. And then now Bob Edwards could be one we could have uh, known for being able to decipher certain sounds in our music and engineering, you know, whether it's ASCAP or BMI or whomever, keeping up with who's who as a producer, singer, songwriter, educator out of, you know, music and films. But, my gosh, so you he knew is his now. Name? You knew his oh, name? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's on lots of albums, and he's on the credits of of a lot of the George Lucas movies. I love George Lucas. I am a, oh my gosh, I, my kids remember when they were little, we had to go see Star Wars 18 times. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah. I said, 18? They're like, yeah, we gave up after that, Mom. We just like, 18 times. I was just enthralled <laughs> with that. You know, I was affected well, by seeing Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but I had to yeah. go to the hospital after I saw that and get Benadryl. But this stuff <laughs> is just so much a part of me that I've just I wish you could play one of those songs. Is there any way you can... Anything loaded now? Anything loaded from it, signals from I apologize. Malibu? I apologize to huh? everybody. It says processing audio file, messages from the dome, then wow. the same one, but they gave me apologized from the uh, engineering department in New York with this uh, British lady that gives me a recording. They said they're having technical difficulties in engineering, and they were oh. sorry, but they've only loaded uh, maybe one-tenth, and all three are just sitting here. You know, they loaded immediately, you know, with a little green sign that everybody's used to, or the little string, zap, you know, for an MP3 or 4, Immediately, so they loaded, but it's inside uh, the engineering department of the uh, in New York. We use Mr. Levy's recording sound studio in New York for Blog Talk Radio mm. that he set up himself. It's very well known. It's very well respected, but for some reason uh, they're not accustomed to having a lot of people play music. I don't think so. Huh. I guess we got them in overwhelm. But they did give me an apologize type of audio saying we're sorry we can't load your music but i'm sorry but we'll do something in the future definitely the one i did the other night on tuesday with mark eddy and barbara delong uh they they played everything and it was like instant maybe like i said janet can if she's constructing the youtube version she can uh you know put some of these songs in where we're talking about them yeah, I'm going to put all the, um, I'll put this recording, I'll put all these pictures so that they kind of feed through. Yeah, she can so embed we'll them. make sure we have all the pictures. Oh, the and other we'll, thing yeah, we'll I, make it. I need to mention, too, well, yeah, where we were just talking about our problem, you could put a song over that. But what I was going to mention is that people are sending me and have sent me lights and things that they've seen at Malibu that they've videoed on their cell phones. And I did Whoa. a video. I did a video for uh, signals from Malibu and one from messages from the dome. And I used pictures and things that people have sent me from that area in it. We performed it on my back lot stage with my band, and then we dissolved in these pictures that people have sent me. So you can go on uh, YouTube and just type in my name and signals from Malibu, 
and messages from the dome, and those two videos will come up. Wow, we've got so much data going on. Yes, definitely. We will definitely have to feature you. It's just we've got so much information to download on you. And, folks, this is exciting (laughs) because we're making history on Valentine's Day with Meryl Finkhauser and Merle. It looks like Meryl, so that's why I keep saying M-E-R-R-E-L, right? Just one L. But it's it's Merle like Merle Haggard, which I should get with my southern accent. (laughs) <laughs> I lost my accent when I was in the military, but I got it back. When uh, I lived well, you know, my Kentucky accent. accent every once in a while comes out. And if I'm around <laughs> somebody from the South, before you know it, I'm talking just like them. <laughs> yeah, you guys well, are contagious. We we don't know that we have an accent because everybody down here talks like us, you know. Yeah. And I'm here. I don't hear a difference from me in Gulf Breeze, Florida. Believe it or not. So, I'm really shocked because <laughs> you know I've lived in Kentucky. Now it's a little thicker in various parts of Kentucky, but uh, yeah. you know we're from the Appalachian area. But I was born in Monroe, Louisiana, and Janet was born in oh. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, and you were born yeah. in Louisville, Kentucky, or right outside. Out of Louisville yeah. or in Louisville? In Louisville, Louisville and yeah, in the hospital, and uh, we lived, you know, sort of more in the country. I remember, you know, there was woods at the end of my street. I was on a Dare Street, and I went to a a little neighborhood school that went up to the fifth grade. Do you remember the name of that school? Yeah, Adair Street School, A-D-A-I-R. And my last teacher was a great teacher. His name was Mr. Little. Oh, Mr. Little. Well, thank you for that, because I love to get anything, like especially we love our teachers and we love our schools. I went to Plum Street Elementary in the first and Mitchell Elementary in the second and then Ransom in third, fourth, fifth, sixth. But I remember all my teachers and all my school names, and I think that's special because we yeah. love our teachers. You remember all your teachers, and I don't. After you get to high school, there's so many you can't. But in the seventh grade, I remember Miss Davis was my homeroom yeah. teacher. Did where do you stop remembering your teachers just for the historical purposes? Is it like junior high and high school? Because I well, quit I after remember one of the years. some of them in high school, but you're right, it gets foggy. In high yeah, school, I, don't I know remember all more of the elementary school teachers. Oh, and just as a note, I'm uh, next month. I'm doing an interview. I've I've been on his show before. Greg Martin from the Kentucky Headhunters, who's still Whoa. in Kentucky. How he about that? There, and he he did well, the you're... same thing you did. He asked me where I went to school in Louisville, and you know what I did, and I remember fishing and catching crawdads in a creek at the end of our road that went into a woods that had a creek that went through it. And uh, yeah, yeah I, that was well, something. Well, see, if it wasn't for, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. It was no, something. I mean, it was something uh, growing up like that. I'm glad I got that experience. And then it was just wonderful that my dad brought us to California and. It just evolved from here, and I think that's why I've done so many different music styles. Uh, you know, I don't get stuck in one genre. I It just comes through me, and I don't question it. I just 
go with it rather than, you know, some of the labels. I remember in the 60s, everybody was afraid the band was going to turn, the record label was going to turn them into a bubblegum band and want them to just play this certain kind of music, you know. And uh, I remember some of the labels, once you got a hit with one style of music, they wanted you to just keep cranking that out. And I was lucky. I got to change from one album to the next. Change style. Well, that's important. If it wasn't for Kentucky, I wouldn't have uh, known how to do what I'm doing with Janet because it was because of music and the bluegrass and the country. And we had American, uh, I had a magazine with my husband that we actually published hard copies that are collector's items now. But it was American, yeah, it was Americana music, if you're talking about different genres. But that's why Bob Edwards, I know the name uh, Sundance Institute, working with uh, BMI and creative directors, film music programs, and uh, Skywalker Sound. But you said it, and I was like, OMG, because you have gotten around with some big leading people. I mean, the, the important thing is, and I've had that. I have that gift, that star over my head, to meet people. They just famous people. I've never figured that out yet. And Janet and I are trying to compare our notes, and would love to have you back if it's okay sometime. And sure. your busy schedule. Do you have yeah. a publicist, hey, I or to, do you book I yourself? To, uh, TJ, I wanted to mention something before we forget. Sure. Because you were talking okay. about Star Wars, and there's a book by Preston Nichols about, and Peter Moon about the music through time. And it's how Uh-oh. the, um, oh, what do you call it, the, the subliminals were put into the music. You, you're mentioning the, the uh, what do you call that, the, you know, yummy, yummy, yummy. I got, what's that style? The, Loving the, my uh, bubblegum. Bubblegum. Bubble yeah. The, yeah. Bubblegum. So, you know why that became so famous? Because Preston Nichols was a young man that was watching Chubby Checker, and they came over and asked him, they said, does anybody know anything about you know, sound, and he he raised his hand. He was a teenager, and he came in and he fixed it for Chubby Checker. Then he got discovered by George Lucas, and they put the subliminals in Star Wars, so everybody wanted to see Star Wars twenty times. Oh, okay. Bubblegum music. They tested this theory, and they said, "Well, let's try this on all these kind of stupid songs." You know. Wow. And they all went to number one. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know that. That's that's interesting. Right. That is, Janet. So I'm glad you put that. So you plugged another book, Preston Nichols, The Music of Time. And let's mention that's Preston time. Nichols and Peter Moon on Amazon right. or Kindle. Peter, that's Preston Nichols, one of our old friends from uh, up there close to Chappaquiddick up there. Okay, we call it Montauk Point, folks. Preston Nichols and uh, his, you can look him up with the Philadelphia Experiment, Montauk Project, Freemasonry, and also Peter Moon, and he has his own uh, book uh, company. And the, the, also, this is Merrill, Merle. Okay, it looks like Merrill, but Merle. it's Merle. 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 And we need to we need to make sure you understand this is his Fankhauser book, and it's Calling from a Star. Okay, Calling from a Star, but and it's the story. Of Merrill Merle Fankhauser, and yeah, we're you so have happy to, in to the have title, him. In the title, Teresa, you have to say "Calling from a Star: The Merle Fankhauser Story." That's the whole title of the book. Because if they just type in "Calling from a Star" at Amazon, they'll probably get 
you know, the audio CD for that song. So you have to type oh. in the whole, the whole title because, you know, there's a song calling from a star and there's the book calling from a star, the Merle Fankhauser story. The Merle Fankhauser story. Okay, folks. Yeah. So now you know, and we have to say it at least three times in our show so people will hear that. So let me say it yeah. one more time. Calling from a Star, the Merle Fankhauser story is now available on Amazon. He is an author, songwriter, musician, friend of Moo, ancients, and ETs, and he was born in Louisville, Kentucky, and moved to California, and he has been very blessed to know very well-known, very many, many people in our history and music. Played with them, been on stage with them, and I can't even tell you all the names, but we've got a picture up with Willie Nelson here. But he's met uh, the famous John of the Beatles. And who else do you want to say that's uh, crossed your paths? Just uh, give name a few. Go ahead. Well, I met, George, I met George Harrison in the mid-'70s when he started Dark Horse Records in Hollywood, and I showed him the pictures of my little jungle cabin on Maui and played him some of my songs, and he really liked my song, On Our Way to Hana. And the producer that started that album, Dino O'Reilly, ended up being the head of Dark Horse Records for George Harrison. Well, he really liked... Uh, what we we hadn't didn't have the album finished yet and Dino gave him a cassette and he took it back to England and the next thing I know George shows up on Maui and he goes out in the jungle to an area called Naihiku which is further out than I lived I lived in Huelo mm-hmm. and he buys a piece of land and builds a house out there and started writing songs <laughs> very similar to mine. And I had a song called On Our Way to Hana, and he wrote a song called My Sweet Hana. And uh, the violinist in my band at that point said, uh-oh, that melody is very close to your melody. And <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting, you know. But, well, that's uh, like when they say... Think about it, Merle. That's when we they send us information from out there for what we're supposed to get and do and receive as uh, receivers. And so we're being sent those things, and not everybody gets them. It's like the movie, uh, what is that one with the gentleman that builds the uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind where they yeah. were sending messages, but only certain people could get them. And right. he built a mud mountain of uh, devil's. Devil's something, Devil's right. Peak, Devil's yeah. Tower. And he was so with it's his like that. potatoes at first when it came to him, <laughs> and he looked at it and said, This means something. Then he went exactly. in the den with clay and started building a model of the Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Right. Yeah. There you go. So you saw so the same movie, dead. and that. Yeah, we're running out of time. You're right, Janet. Go yeah. ahead. Mm-hmm. Just want to kind of. Oh, well, I just wanted to finish this thread that we were talking about. So we. Um, so uh, George Harrison ended up living in Maui, and you'd think that that was from uh, he got influenced by your music and your story and the pictures Girl, that I showed and the him. pictures 
Yeah, because uh-huh. the head of his record company said he was so impressed with everything in that environment, and he really wanted to live in that kind of an environment. And, you know, it was a shame that he smoked cigarettes because that's what got him. He got throat yeah. cancer, you know. And he was a very nice right. guy. I met his son and his wife, Olivia, in a little restaurant in Paia called Easy Cafe back then. And his son, uh, Danny, I, I remember meeting him, and he was just a little kid. And now I've seen him once or twice, you know, on a tribute to his dad on television. And he looks a lot like him and even kind he of does. sounds like him. Mm-hmm. It is are all these he, people that the, you've crossed paths in your book? Uh, yeah, I, I mentioned all of it, you know, briefly, and I did it all chronologically. And I got Neil Young's book, and uh, he skips around. One minute you're in 1964 in Winnipeg, and the next thing he jumps way up to 83. And he kept doing that through the whole book, and it was hard to follow, and other people said the same thing. And I heard an interview by him, and he said, well, if you have a hard time following it, because I do like to skip around a lot, he said, just quit reading. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Well, it is because we're we shouldn't be linear, but we are in in this yeah. timeline. If you believe in time, space, and gravity, we didn't get very heavy with you, Meryl. But I'd like to have you back sometime when you can arrange it and Janet, your publicist or whomever, and we'll oh, yeah. be more sure. than happy to get into some of this uh, time, space, gravity, and getting people to understand more about precogs. I promised them I'd do readings tonight, precognition. But folks, I'm going to get back to you. This week, but this was so important to get Merrill here because he's so tight on time and going out and doing so many of these things with his famous music. And, you know, it's just that time for him to get uh, this new thing out. Now, let's use that word. Is it electric? Tell us the word again, Merrill, with all these people. Eclectia. Eclectia. Is the title of the new album, 17 Bands that and Artists that all feel their music is influenced by ETs or UFOs. And it's available at a lot of spots online, and it's it's mostly uh, electronically, digitally available. It is available at Amazon, but I also have it at Ocean Records here in California, and that's Ocean Records P.O. Box 1504, Arroyo Grande, California, 93421. And you can order the CD direct from there, and I can even sign it if somebody wants it signed. Wow. I, I want to mention mine on here just for you, Meryl, that I had some information I received with music and did a couple of them, once from uh, Atlantis Oracle and Delphi Oracle. And it was music I received in uh, in the download, like a channel received in my past lives. So that's available on YouTube for free. Janet likes it, uh, but it's mm. uh, it's on. Uh, you can pick it up. Atlantis. You did that with Scott it's Atlantis Huckabee. Oracle. Scott Huckabee, Great. yes, Atlantis Oracle okay. is. Okay, uh, I'll look at that. And I don't have any. I don't have any music out there, but <laughs> I've always. <laughs> uh, 
fan of all your work, Merle. Anyway, let's. Uh, we have like four minutes. Where do we want to go to wrap this up? Because this is uh, we're going to run out of time. Well, we got to make sure they know uh, how to get in touch with him and all of yeah. that. Yeah, Merle, you know, it's, so your website and is. And so we want you to repeat that. Okay, the website is MerleFankhauser.com, M-E-R-R-E-L-L-F-A-N-K-H-A-U-S-E-R.com, and my email is Merle at MerleFankhauser.com. And if they want any of the the books, the music, the CDs, DVDs, uh, they can just email me and I can send them a catalog through email. Wonderful. Right. Thank you so much. I'll put your website on this uh, page on AquarianRadio.com. And where are you going to put the information for Merle on your which site, TJ? Oh, I'll have it on several. I'm going to put it on uh, TJ Mars ET Radio, TJ Mars Radio. I'm going to put it on TJ Mars Agency, Cosmos Expo. Ascension Age, because it fits on so many different of our genres that we have in the New Age and the Ascension Age. And, of course, uh, let's see, probably I think we should go ahead and enroll him possibly in the future uh, with our futurist. And uh, we've got Eric Hopp for uh, future and time travelers, but also for the UFO secret space, are especially UFO association. So, folks, we will uh, do a splash around on today's radio show. So I'll post it a lot of places with some of his pictures, and then hopefully he sent me downloads. And if you want those out there now, but we have to have your permission, we'll put them out oh, there yes, together. Oh yes, you have my permission to play all of the music because you know people want to hear it and there's a video for lila on youtube also because oh, my agent that. kept getting requests we want to see merle sing this song because there was never any video of it and so okay, lila is under merle fankhauser on youtube wonderful um, will you keep that channel L- going l-a-i-l-a yeah l L I L A, Lila. L I L A. Right. So thank you. I'll pull that thank up you put so that on the page as well. Right. Thank so you, we'll have to Jay and Janet for having me on. Can well, we have you back? You You're just a pleasure. Just a thank pleasure you. of a spirit. Just absolutely Happy Valentine's electric. Day. <laughs> You're a wonderful yes, soul. Valentine's thank Day. you. Thank and you we so can have much. him back. Janet Janet takes care of our calendar, Meryl, so would you yes. uh, email her? Dano. Yeah, we communicate yeah, regularly. <laughs> I put okay. E.T. Moo Wipeout guitarist up there. So we are now officially our E.T. Moo Wipeout guitarist, Meryl, because uh, we got you got your E.T. Moo with you, okay? So we're going right. to connect Thank all you. that. It makes more sense to my people. All right. Love and light. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Janet. Yeah. Thank you, Meryl. Merle. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Warmest aloha's. Happy Valentine's Day. Oh, okay. thank you so Bye-bye. much. We'll play Lila to get out of here. All right, thank you. Good night.